This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello, and welcome to the Power of Murmuration podcast, where we explore modern management and leadership practices, leadership as a state of mind, and co-create a leadership-focused future. I'm Jennifer Roma, and I will be sharing this space with local, national, and international leadership and management experts. Today, we're joined by Tim Keogh. Brilliant pleasure. Thank you, Tim. Tim is a globally recognized expert in creating kinder cultures. He's developed and refined a kinder feedback model, which we're going to talk about later, as well as a wonderful book called Kinder Conversations, which was really what sparked my interest in his work. And he's a podcaster and got a website and he's an all-round good egg. Tim, warm welcome to you. Hi, good afternoon. Really, really nice to see you. Nice to be here. So tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you become interested in leadership and kindness? What's your background? Tell us a little about the early years of Tim. Oh, my goodness me. How far back do you want to go? (laughs) (laughs) How far back do you want to go, really? All right. So, um, well, let's start with my career, shall we? So I started out working in advertising. I spent 10 years working in advertising, worked in Milan for a couple of years. Then just at the start of the dot-com boom, I opened I. I started a web design business, which I grew for a few years, but all of these things. And, and then, well, I'll tell you about in a minute, got, got involved in, in, let's call it culture, culture work in organizations, staff experience work. But it's all of this is about the confluence of people and behavior change. Yeah. It's all about thinking about people, about, about their emotions, about what works for them, what doesn't work for them and changing behaviors, our own behaviors, helping to change other people's behaviors just to make our workplaces nicer to be in. Certainly, that's where we are now. So 15 years ago, because I've been around for quite a long time, that, that, the advertising was 35 years ago. 15 years ago, I was consulting in consumer experience, customer experience, how to create better customer experiences in all different kinds of, of, of organization. And just happened by mistake into a piece of work with Cambridge University Hospitals, Adam Rooks, they had asked us to to do a piece of work on their marketing strategy, of all things. I think back then, why, why would they need a marketing strategy? But there you go. And that worked pretty well. They were pleased with it. And said, well, can you help us with our, our patient experience? We've done a lot of customer experience work. So that was really, really interesting. Well, cut to now, 12, 13 years later, and I've worked with 75 healthcare organizations all the way around the world, as far afield as well, Great Ormond Street, where we did some work helping to develop values and embed those values a few years back, but also New York, New Zealand, all the way across the NHS, of course, 75 organizations, 75,000 healthcare staff from all different backgrounds, professional groups that have attended our workshops and masterclasses and trainings. And so how do we get from patient experience to culture and colleague experience? Well, Healthcare is quite evidence-based, and rightly so. And so we started to do this work. Well, I'm going to stand up in front of a group of doctors and say, let's talk to you about kindness. And somebody would fold their arms, stick their hand up, and say, where's the evidence for this? So obviously, you know, we have to explore the evidence. And then the evidence clearly shows that if you want a great patient experience, you need a great colleague experience. 
if you want a high quality care, you need a great colleague experience. If you want safe care, you need a great colleague experience. If you want a productive organization, you need a great colleague experience. It all leads back to staff experience, to people having a great experience at work, enjoying their work, being engaged at work, being motivated at work, and so on. So my focus increasingly moved to thinking about how we can improve people's experience at work in healthcare. And actually, what's it, over the last maybe seven or eight years, I've asked about 35,000 healthcare staff, from porter to professor, from cleaner to clinician, what makes a good day at work for you and what makes a bad day at work for you? And it's really interesting because it's not what you might expect. The good days at work in healthcare are driven by people. The number one driver of a good day at work in healthcare is when someone sees me and notices me and appreciates my work. Number two, it was about kinder colleagues who've got, got your back. And the third most important driver of a good day at work in healthcare is when you work with people with a positive attitude who aren't hoovering up the mood all the time. And the bad days are exactly the same, even over the last kind of two and a half, three years since COVID. We've spoken to more than 10,000 people and asked them the same question. Only 19% of people say their bad days at work are as a result of short staffing, pressure and stress. 80% is down to colleagues' poor behaviours, rudeness, mean and civil, bullying, racism, discrimination. So there's a range of a, a, a kind of spectrum of poor behaviours. That's what makes bad days at work for people. When people are having good days at work, they're engaged, they do better work. When people are having bad days at work, they are disengaged. It breaks down teamwork. It makes mistakes more likely. And so that's where our focus has increasingly been on understanding how to help people to change their behaviours so that people have more good days at work and fewer bad days at work in healthcare. So that's where our business is called The Kind Life. And our mission is to spread kindness in healthcare. Now, that's that's kind of where we have got to. It was maybe five or six years, maybe five years ago, I finally realized it's all about kindness after looking at that data that I've just talked you through. And we were doing this work as part of a bigger consultancy, but we really wanted to focus on it. Other, other parts of that consultancy were doing different things, and we want to focus everything on kindness in healthcare. So two years ago, three of us demerged from that organization, kept going with the work that we were doing, but under the banner of a kind life, we're now eight people, probably 10 by the end of May, because clearly kindness is, people, people, people are seeing that it's important. You know, the message is getting through, which is absolutely wonderful. So that, that's kind of, that's the background. That's where I came from. That's why we're doing what we do now. And I mean, just to clarify, this isn't just about having nicey-nicey conversations and smoothing people. That's probably not a word, but you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's about stroking people and being ever so, ever so nice. Kindness, yeah. it is about those efforts that you make in your attitude and your behavior to have robust and sometimes challenging conversations, isn't it? And yeah. I, how, how do you make that happen when we're in a world of political correctness and we're not yeah. sure what we should, should say and we're not so sure what we shouldn't say. Yeah, okay. So, well, let me just step back from that a moment and talk about, the, you know, there's two questions in there, really. One was about what is kindness and the other is that how do we start to have these more robust conversations? 
kindness, people talk about random acts of kindness. And we actually, there is random acts of kindness day. It was about a month ago. I saw it on social media. And I, I, I was thinking, well, firstly, why do we only get a day? Because actually, it's really, really important. And secondly, kindness is anything but random. Kindness is really, really intentional. You know, about choosing the behaviors you exhibit, choosing the ways you talk to people in ways that encourage good things to happen. So, yes, kindness is not just being, it's not just being nice. You know, kindness means identifying the things that work for other people and doing those things. What makes good days? It means identifying the things that don't work for people, the bad days, and doing fewer of those things. It's really, really intentional. You know, we're, we're all emotional beings, all of us. And, you know, our emotions run before our thoughts. That's how we've evolved over the last 200,000 years. And so when people are kind to us, what happens is it's a part of this kind of building social bonds. Um, you know, 200,000 years, 100,000 years, 50,000 years ago, this is really, really important. You know, we only survived in groups. So lots of ways in which we've evolved to ensure that kind behavior where we're building social bonds is actually rewarded and unkind behavior is treated in the brain in exactly the same way as if we were there was a threat to life when someone is unkind to us even an uncivil tone of voice we go into our fight or flight mechanism we're much more likely to make mistakes we disengage from people teamwork breaks down and we know in healthcare teamwork is essential to providing high quality care. So all of these things, these are kind of emotional responses have practical outcomes, particularly in healthcare around teamwork. But actually, even just being kind to somebody else, even just being kind has huge benefits. When you're kind to someone, when you choose to be kind to someone, you will experience it because obviously we've evolved in this way, you'll experience a burst of dopamine, our reward system. Dopamine sparks agency and motivation. You will experience a burst of serotonin, our mood regulator, making you calmer and less stressed. You'll experience a burst of oxytocin, our social hormone, the thing that builds those social bonds is so important in teamwork, building better social relationships. There was a study of people who defined themselves as being highly anxious they were asked to perform one kind act a day, okay? So after four weeks, they had Sundays off, I think, 24 kind acts, those people reported a significant drop in anxiety, a significant drop in social avoidance behaviors, and a significant improvement in their own levels of happiness. There was another study published about six, eight weeks ago, which showed that being kind is a better cure for anxiety and a better cure for depression than SSRIs and cognitive behavioral therapy combined. You know, I, I was talking with a colleague who said basically the evidence is so strong that our message really should be be kind or die early. You know, there's a study of people who volunteer for at least two organizations. There's people over 55 who volunteer for at least two organizations. These people taking into account all other contributing factors, were 44% less likely to die early than people who do not. 
people who demonstrate inclusive behaviors, you know, so inclusivity towards people in black, Asian, minority, ethnic groups with other protected characteristics have four times better health and well-being than people who do not. Yeah. So kindness is not soft and fluffy. You know, the outcomes there are really, really, really important to measure. But as you've said, it's also about being able to speak up when you need to, being able to have those conversations when you need to. People call them difficult conversations. I call them kinder conversations. And that's what the book was all about. And, and actually, so your other question, you said about political correctness. Now, I, I, I don't want to get too political in this, but in my experience, Political correctness is a phrase often used by people who don't want to hear the truth. And typically when things are politically correct, they're actually just correct. So, you know, there are things that we can't and shouldn't say anymore because they're hurtful to people, because they are prejudicial, because they're racist. We shouldn't have said them in the first place. And we're realizing now that we shouldn't say them now. But... The way we help people to start to introduce to to have these conversations, these kinder conversations, th these conversations, let's say, where we can disagree without being disagreeable. Our method is called build. So it's about building relationships. It's about building trust. It's about building solutions. That's why it's called build. If anyone's interested in it, they can get the book. The book's called Kinder Conversations. Talk it out without falling out by me, Tim Keogh. And you can find it on Amazon. So build, basically there are five steps in build. It stands, it's a structure for a great feedback conversation. The B stands for behavior. The U for understand. The I for impact. The L for listen. And the D for do differently. But actually we just focus on that first step, behavior. The very, very first thing that we ask people to think about when they're giving feedback, when they're having these conversations they would otherwise have found difficult, is to describe the behavior that they have just observed in a way that's factual, observed, actually happened, is non-judgmental, is not your interpretation of what happened, but is the reality of what happened, not your perspective, but the facts. And I think that the key thing here, the key learning here, is to identify when you're going to make a judgment, when you're going to talk judgmentally. So, for example, the, if people read the book, the very, very first story in there is a story which actually got me thinking about this in the first place and actually got me to think about why should we develop an approach for this. When I came home from holiday, left my teenage kids behind, and I came back and excited. I read from the book for me. We were excited till we got to the house, saw the state of the kitchen with a leaning tower of pizza plates and pizza boxes, an absolutely filthy kitchen you know, really, really angry. And, you know, I didn't have a method for doing it. I just tore into them. You know, you're a disgrace. This, 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 you're a disappointment. You're self-centered. You never think about other people. This is such a mess. You think about all those words, they're all judgments. None of those are fact. They're all my judgments, my emotional judgments on this particular situation. Yeah. Voice is raised, daughter slams. We didn't talk to each other for a few days. And I still feel like the rupture of that when I'm talking about it now in the relationship. It's difficult. When the bad things happen, we tend to either attack or avoid. But I was attacking. Avoiding doesn't help either. You know, maybe I'd come back. Maybe I would have come back and gone, oh my goodness me, this isn't very good. I'll do it myself. 
I'll avoid do, but I'll do the washing up myself. But what I'll do is I'll ban all the pants together in a passive aggressive way so they can hear what I'm doing. Now, that doesn't work either. We need this middle ground, remove judgment. So not talking about personality traits like, you know, self-centered, not talking about my feelings about it. You know, you are a disappointment. Not even describing it as a mess. Because even then, if someone can say, well, I disagree. I mean, it was, it was much worse before. You know, at least it's tidy around the sink now. If someone can disagree, then you are making a judgment. Yeah. You want to give feedback in a way that you're looking for agreement. So I come back and say, there are a number of pizza boxes in here and there are dirty plates all stacked up next to the sink. And if they go, yeah, well, that's great. They may not like to hear it, but they have to agree it's true. And agreement is what you are looking to do. So when you think about political correctness, put all those things to one side. Just describe things in a way that means people have to agree. Then your feelings can come in in the impact stage. You know, I can see all of this. It's a real mess to me and it makes me feel really disappointed. That's okay. Then you listen to the other person. You say, so what was happening for you? Never ask why, by the way. Read the book for that. Why is a really unhelpful question. All the justifications will come out. Heats the things up again. What was happening? And listen to them. Listen to what was going on and then say, so what can we do differently? So we can resolve this together so it doesn't happen again and work on resolution. That, that would be my response to that. Look for judgments and just cut them out of your language. Well, that's a, a wonderful, wonderful story. I am very impressed that you still get a house left, Tim. <laughs> if it was only a pile of pizza boxes, very well done to them. That's what I say. But no, I take, <laughs> take your point. So thinking about kindness generally, what three things would you recommend if someone is listening today and wants to begin to change the culture of their organization, just start by nudging very slowly. Yeah. What, what three things could you recommend for them to do? What well, I, doing? I think that that's really, really, really important question. And I think there are two ways of looking at it. So you talk about nudge. Actually, what we found in our work, because we tried everything, is that just nudging things along slowly, going like team by team by team and, and so tends not to work as well as trying to change things at pace and at scale. The issue is we don't just work in one team. We work in multidisciplinary teams, different teams at different times. So if you work with one team, they go back into the organization and all of a sudden, you know, they just revert to the norm because culture is really sticky because these other teams are still behaving in these other ways. They don't know how to give feedback. They don't know how to encourage a, you know, a positive culture. So our advice is to senior leaders, if you want to change culture, don't treat it like a super tanker where it takes three years to change. That's not the way to do it. You need to do it at pace and at scale, like six months maximum, thousands and thousands of people get everybody involved in shaping the culture, in reshaping their everyday experience to match that culture that we want. And then in, in developing leaders who then lead that culture, pace and at scale. Now, not everybody's in a position to be able to do that. So if you do want to start to nudge forward, I think there would be three things. The first is this. We go back to and think about our what makes a good day at work in healthcare. The number one driver of a good day at work in healthcare is appreciation. Seeing and noticing somebody and saying thank you. Not just a vague, oh, thanks for today, which is a bit patronizing, but actually in the same way as with build, appreciating the specifics you notice people do that make a difference and 
telling people the benefits of those things and asking them to con continue doing them. We call that the ABC, the action, the benefit, and the continue. Be really intentional about your appreciation. Successful teams, organizations, successful work relationships, and personal relationships, there's a study of divorce that showed this, consistently use five times more appreciative feedback than critical feedback. And, and the, the appreciation is about encouraging the things you want to see so appreciate the things that you want to see and you will see relationships change. Actually, there was a study of bullying that showed that if someone is behaving in a way that you don't like, tell them the way you don't like it, but then separately appreciate them for things that they do like. And what it does is it improves confidence. That confidence reduces poor behavior. It's incredible. Appreciation is absolutely a superpower. That was the first thing I'd mention. I think that the second thing I would talk about is, is just get to know people. Ask people, how are you? Ask people what's going on in their lives. The benefit of that is enormous. The number one way of building belonging in teams is by asking people how they are, checking in professionally and personally. When people feel like they belong, they are three times more likely to contribute to their fullest potential. So ask people, how are you? And really listen. And I guess the third thing is, when you need to speak up, speak up. Yeah, learn how to do it, learn how to give build feedback or any of the other models that are out there and speak up. Because if we say nothing, nothing is going to change. You can sit there and go, oh, it's awful. You know, why do we do this? But if we don't speak up and the behavior we walk past is our standard of behavior, that's the standard of behavior we're happy with. So appreciate people, ask people, how are you? And speak up. Those would be the things that I would advise. And when you've started this culture change and you're looking for positive, how do you measure the impact? I know there are the normal things, things like the staff survey and the pulse survey and all sorts of friends and family, but how do you measure that at the grassroots that you have in fact changed the culture of an organization? Yeah. It depends if you're looking to, to say measure in terms of looking at your dashboard, you know, your outcome metrics, you're measuring in terms of looking at things that you seem to look at, see change like here and now. So from a dashboard perspective, actually the friends and family test, and I have to apologize, I'm probably responsible for introducing that to the NHS because maybe 10 years ago, I introduced it to three NHS organizations in East Anglia, and then they were then the pilot and, and so on. The, the reason friends and family test is really valuable. If you ask the second question, please tell us the main reason you gave that score. Yeah. That's where you start to be able to do analytics around what's making a difference. But it is responsible for it's 70% of the variation with all of the other measures of engagement. And we know when staff are engaged at work and healthcare, great things happen in terms of safety outcomes and efficiency. So that kind of thing is really important to measure. I'd also be looking to measure some of the things that lead to that around whether people feel valued, whether people feel appreciated, whether people feel safe to speak up. Those would be the three things that I really want to look at there. And teamwork. The teamwork metrics in the NHS staff survey are really valuable. They correlate very, very highly with staff, friends and family tests, and they correlate very highly with patient outcomes. Right now, I'd be looking to see fewer people coming in and talking about they're being bullied, they're being harassed, they're experiencing racism. And we've talked at a high level about this, but what our work actually does is it gives people the tools and the skills, the wherewithal to be able to talk about these kinds of things at the front line and to support them as adults. Look, freedom to speak up is brilliant, but it really ought to be for whistleblowing. 
You know, if we're two adults and there's something going on and we want to talk about it, we need to be able to create a space where people feel safe to talk about it and skilled to talk about it. So those are the kinds of conversations we need to see more of. You measure measure it that way. We have a program called Respectful Resolution, which is an upstream way of managing issues of bullying, harassment and racism before they get into formal. A star, one of the, the staff side chair at one of our trusts we're working with reported that just just him introducing that to his conversations when people came in and said, oh, I'm being bullied, I need, I need some help. There, it was a one-third reduction in his bullying caseload. Those are the kinds of things we need to see at the front line, just fewer of those behaviours and more people working them out together as, as adults. Yes, talking together, having those talking. conversations, exactly as you say. Yeah. So in your world, can you tell us a little bit more about what's happening, your plans for the future, the challenges that you're facing? Have you got a new book in the pipeline? What are the themes that you're mm. I've got so many questions, Tim. Over to you. Yeah. Yes. So, well, we are growing, which is great. The, the appetite for kindness is clearly, you know, we're doing this a long time and it's now kind of flavor of the month and it's wonderful to see and rightly so. So we're, we're growing. We're taking on new people, new trainers and program managers and, and e-learning designers and so on, which is fabulous. You know, just to get a bit personal for this moment, when we work in personal development, which is in a way what we do, I think that we do the work we need ourselves. So I think I personally was never great at speaking up, never great at expressing my needs, never so, so good at kind of talking about things when they weren't working for me. So I think I worked on this because I needed it. And then we change it to other people and other people see that they need it. And for me, there is definitely another book and maybe more. But I think that, you know, this book about conversations is really, really important. It's super practical, really easy for everyone. It works just as well at home as it does at work. But I think that the next step for me and maybe in our work is to say, you know, it's very difficult to be kind to others if we're not being kind to ourselves. You know, we need to fill up our own well of well-being before we can fill up others. And that's my journey too. So I think perhaps there's something about, you know, how, how do we practically learn to be kind to ourselves, have kinder conversations in our own heads, you know, be mindful of our emotions and our thoughts and how they impact our emotions and how they impact on our relationships, how they impact on our, our success at, at work and so on. So some kind of practical emotional intelligence, something around that about being kinder to ourselves. I think that's a journey inward rather than a journey outward, but that's probably, that's probably where I'm, I'm going. Well, and maybe we'll, wait, we'll wait for the next book, but there's definitely yeah, some but, but personal you're, story you're quite, to tell in You're there. quite right on that one, Tim, that actually that little voice inside us, which is sometimes the, the loudest voice that we're likely to hear, is so rude. And mm. I often say to people, you know, if I said those things to you, that you're going to be rubbish in a presentation, that you're going to dry, that you're going to freeze, not know what to say, that you would hate me. But yes. actually, we say it to ourselves all yes. the time. So I suggest to people, I don't know whether it's right or not, it's my way of saying it, think about those thoughts. Are they helpful and yeah. are they kind? Yes. And if they're not helpful or kind, then absolutely you have the power over your own mind to stop it. And yes. to do something else, have a glass of water, walk around the block, do whatever you need. Because I think we, we are quite self-sacrificing in healthcare mm. in generally. We tend to look after others and not ourselves. Yes. And my friend who used to be in cabin crew has said many times that they're always the unwritten rule is 
put your own oxygen mask on and then help others. But until you've got yours on, you're not really going to be, you're more likely to be a hindrance to others. And and that's far easier said than done. Absolutely. As it is with kind of conversations, as it is with these other things we've spoken about. And so for me, this is about, one of the things I've always loved doing is kind of deconstructing stuff that people think is common sense and go, actually, here's how you actually do it. So for me, a deconstruction of how do you actually be kinder to yourself, justify it to yourself, do it so that it's actually going to make a difference, I think is probably the next step. Yeah, I always say do as I do as I say and not as I do, because I yes. think we can be the worst, can't we? We know we know what we should be doing, but actually I'd much rather help other people than help myself. So yes. thank you, Tim. That was wonderful. Thank You're you welcome. so much. Thank you so much for your time. Fascinating to talk to you. I hope we speak again soon and I'm really looking forward to that next book. Thank you so much. I've really, really enjoyed it and I appreciate being asked. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Power of Murmuration. As ever, we hope that this sparks your curiosity, encourages you to think differently and inspires your courage to act. Please join us again next month and goodbye till then. The team at the Gosh Learning Academy would love to get your feedback on the episode, as well as suggestions for future topics you'd like to hear. You can find a link to the feedback survey in the description for the episode. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can find us on social media, on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn, or you can visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.